Okay, we uh, return to the um, the Bible survey tonight. It's been quite a long time since the last one, and for those who uh, haven't been with us uh, or, or have only been with us since the last one, what we've been doing really over the last couple of years is we've been going through every book in the Bible, like basically one talk on each book, um, you know, so literally through the scriptures, chapter by chapter, a kind of a Bible commentary, uh, you know, sort of like spoken, as it were. Um, so we're on 2 Corinthians. We actually did two talks on 1 Corinthians because uh, there was uh, quite a lot in there that needed to be covered. Um, but tonight we can do 2 Corinthians, I think, quite happily in just the one talk. Um, I, I covered, obviously, when we did 1 Corinthians, all the background to Corinth and the historical perspective, the, you know, the religious kind of you know, situation that you know, the Greeks and the Jews in the church in Corinth were in. So I won't go over all that again, because um, you know, that's, that's, that's on the tapes um, when we did 1 Corinthians. So we'll, we'll just kind of take that as read and uh, dive in um, now to 2 Corinthians. Now, it, it was written a few months after 1 Corinthians, so not a great deal of time has elapsed um, at all. And, um, and it was written by Paul from Macedonia, which was up in the northern province of uh, Greece. Uh, Corinth was down in uh, Archaea, which, which was down in the, the south near Athens. So Paul's up north, all right, in the northern part of Greece, Macedonia, and, and he's writing now to the uh, church at, uh, Corinthia, uh, in Corinth. Now, what he's done, he's, he's actually, and this is a bit of background that you'll need, he's, he's announcing to them a change in his plans. Um, he, he, he'd kind of originally thought um, that he would come and have two short visits with them. But what he's decided to do is to put off going back and save it and have a longer visit with them a little bit later on. So, so basically, he kind of originally said to them, well, I'll, I'll come back and get you know, sort of two visits in, but now he's changing his plans and he's saying, I'm going to hold off a bit and I'll, I'll just come the once. Um, now we we saw um, you know sort of like when we're doing one Corinthians that false apostles had got into the church and obviously they they wanted to slag Paul off because they wanted to get rid of Paul's influence because obviously they wanted to have control of the church and you know themselves and you know spread all their false teaching and so they they had all kinds of accusations that they kept leveling at Paul uh, not not to his face this is all behind his back. And, um, and of course, one of the things that he's, he's having to deal with in the letter here is that because he's changed his plans, now his critics in the church are saying, oh, well, look, you can't trust the thing that, that Paul says, all right. So, so Paul is having to, you know, like defend himself as well against the accusation, amongst other things, that, that he, he can't be trusted and, you know, and that, um, you know, his words can't be believed. And, um, so these guys are continuing to challenge the fact that Paul was a genuine apostle of Jesus. Um, we saw last time that, that there were lots of uh, aspersions that they were casting in regards to money and uh, you know, trying to make out that Paul was dishonest. Um, and uh, Paul accounted that by reminding them that he worked for nothing. He didn't charge them. So how could anyone say he was being dishonest when he didn't make any charges? And what's happening now is that the critics have changed tack and they're saying, oh, well, you know, if he's doing it for nothing, his teaching must be worthless, mustn't it, is he? And that, that's the angle they're now coming from. And, and so Paul is going to be combating 
um, that um, as well. And he's dealing with finances in this letter a bit because he's arranging for a collection that's going to be taken uh, for the church in Jerusalem. So a little bit of background, obviously we'll, you know, we'll hit that as we go through um, you know, each chapter. Um, now we'll, we'll take chapters 1 and 2 as a kind of a clump. Um, and in chapter one, the, the the first two verses are just Paul, you know, saying hi and um, you know, sort of uh, his standard grace and peace to you, as it were. And uh, Timothy is with him, and Timothy sends greetings as well. Um, in verses three to eleven, he reminds them that God is the God of all comfort, and uh, he says that through through the troubles that we go through, we actually discover God's comfort. Um, and if we discover the Lord comforting us when we go through hard times, then that means that we can really be a help to others when they're going through hard times. Because if we've got through hard times and found God's comfort in difficult situations, then obviously we can help other people through the dark times as well in their hardships. And Paul says this is all part of sharing the sufferings of Jesus. This is all part of following him. Jesus went through great trials and tribulations and if we follow him it's going to be the same for us. And, um, and Paul says as well that, that with all the hardships that he and you know, his colleagues were going through, he's saying look you know, these, these troubles are good for us as well because it keeps us dependent on the Lord and not dependent on ourselves. Uh, you know, and so Paul's saying, crumbs, we, we can't afford to depend on ourselves. We need to depend on the Lord. And, and these troubles and hardships, they, they help, you know, they keep us weak. They, they keep us relying on the Lord um, and not on self. And so there's two things there he's saying about, you know, when you're going through a hard time, two things to be encouraged by. One, as you find the comfort of the Lord, it's preparing you to be a help to others when they go through hard times. And secondly, when you're going through hard times, it's keeping you dependent on the Lord rather than on yourself. And we all know that, that if everything goes swimmingly, I mean, if everything in the garden was, was rosy the whole time, it would erode our dependence on the Lord. We kid ourselves if we think it wouldn't, but it would. And, and, and the fact that the Lord mixes in difficulties into our life is all part of keeping us dependent on Him. Now, from chapter 12, in, uh, sorry, from verse 12 in chapter 1 through to the first few verses uh, of chapter 2, he, he kind of, he, he now begins the defence of, uh, you know, sort of the fact that people are accusing him of being dishonest, etc, etc. And uh, he reminds them that their own considerable experience of him, their own personal experience, showed them his honesty and integrity. And of course the point is, that if you, if you have personal experience of people over a long period of time and you, they've proven themselves to you, well, how ridiculous to then start doubting them just because of whispers you hear in the background. Satan always attacks people like that, especially people in leadership. This, this is indeed why when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, look, don't accept any charge against an elder, accusation against it, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Because, you know, crumbs, it, it's so easy isn't it, to hear the rumours and, and stuff like that. And Paul says, look, you've got no reason to doubt me. All your experience of me demonstrated to you that I was honest and that I'm a man of integrity. So he says, so why are you doubting me now? Just because people are saying all these things about me behind my back. And he said, look, my plans have changed. 
But he says, let me tell you why. And he tells them that he wanted to hold off from visiting them a bit longer. Not because he was unreliable, not because he wasn't a man of his word, but because he wanted them to have a bit more time to set all the things in order that he corrected them about when he wrote 1 Corinthians. And oh boy, things were out of order in the Corinthian church. And he says, I'm wanting you to have more time to get it right so that when I do come, our visit together can be a bit more pleasant rather than me just having to go over all these corrections. So he says, that's why I've changed my mind. That's why my plans have changed. Not for my benefit, but purely for yours. And I just want to read verses 18 to 22 um, from uh, chapter 1. He says, As surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And Paul's saying, I wasn't saying yes or no at the same time. You know, I was, I've just changed my plans because I want to give you a little bit more time to sort yourselves out so that when I come, it'll be easier for you. He says, I'm thinking of you. And then he goes on to say, and Jesus isn't yes and no at the same time. God isn't mealy-mouthed. And he says, people who follow him shouldn't be mealy-mouthed either. Yes should be yes, no should be no. James deals with that, doesn't he? And he says, look, in Jesus, all God's promises are yes. There's no contradiction in Jesus. And it's, 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 it's certainly the case that, that in following the Lord, certainly our, our word should be our bond. And James says that a double-minded man is, is unstable in all his ways. And, uh, you know, so, so Paul's saying, this isn't double-mindedness that I'm going through. I'm simply rearranging things to make it easier for you lot okay and and of course here when he talks about that 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 god set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come well but this is paul talking about this is how you can be absolutely sure that you are going to be glorified you are secure you can never lose your salvation and in the greek here mixed in is the idea of an engagement ring um, Arabon, and in modern Greek, Arabona is an engagement ring. And it's a point that, you know, you know, almost as he's saying, you know, Jesus has, as it were, proposed to us, and we've said yes. And he says, you can be absolutely sure Jesus isn't going to call the wedding off. And the fact that you've got the Holy Spirit, that's the down payment, that's the dowry. That is your guarantee that God will never change his mind about getting you to heaven. And so Paul says, the whole thing about following the Lord, everything is definite with God. And he says, look, Everything is definite with me as well. This charge of me being double-minded is just not going to stick. I'm simply doing it this way to make it easier for you lot. And it's interesting, there isn't. I mean, when, when people are just kind of personally slicing you, I mean, obviously, most of the time it's best not to defend yourself, but Paul is defending his apostleship here. It's not, it's not, but, you know, it's not as if he was like people to his face calling him names and he's, he's you know, having a go back at them. He's defending his apostleship. 
there are many times when regardless of what people might be saying about you behind your back, just let it go, just pray for them, just forgive them, just love them. But there is a time, and, and here Paul is defending his apostleship, because the well-being of the churches depended on recognising that Paul, with all the others, was a genuine apostle. And, um, and you know, he just goes on to say in the next few verses, look, your, your sin is grieving me, and I, I want to be rejoicing over you. So, so he says, you know, just get yourself sorted out, I'll come a bit later on, and then we'll have a good time rather than me having to come and uh, be a, you know, sorting you out for all the things I, I wrote you about. Now, in, in verse 5 of uh, chapter 2 through to um, verse 11, he turns to the, the need of the church to restore a brother who'd been excommunicated. Now, we saw in the first talk, when we did 1 Corinthians, um, that there was a guy, and Paul says that you should put him out of the church because he was in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. Um, and, you know, and Paul was saying, look, and, you know, he hasn't repented, so kick him out. Now, it's, it's probably a fair assumption that Paul is now referring to him, that this guy has repented. But anyway, whether it's him or not, there's obviously someone in the Corinthian church who'd been put out of the church, quite rightly, but they've repented. And now Paul is saying, bring them back. Bring them back. And he says, now because they have turned from their sin, whatever it was, he said, look, they need to know that they're forgiven. They need to, to be restored. They need to be comforted and to built up, you know, to be built up and, and fully restored back into fellowship. And, uh, and he says, look, and if you don't do that, he says, Satan gets in and outwits people. So, you know, in regards, you know, to e even when a Christian comes under the discipline of the church, any time that there's repentance in our hearts, whether it's just the sin against the Lord and, you know, we're putting it right, or whether it's a, a, a major rebellion thing that we've been doing and, and the church has actually had to say, well, look, bye-bye until such time as you put this right. The point is when we do confess sin, is faith and justice to forgive us our sin. And that has to be acted out within the context of the church family, of course. No holding it against anyone. Um, you know, I, I mean, obviously there can be times when, you know, sort of like you might, you know, want to watch someone a bit carefully. I mean, we've experienced in the past, haven't we, people with a problem with theft. I mean, none of them have remained, you know. I mean, the main guy I'm thinking about completely fell away. You know, but I mean, obviously, had it been a big repentance thing and he came back, I'd still watch where I'd put my wallet, you know what I mean? I'd forgive him and he'd be restored and he wouldn't be, you know, throwing it in his face or anything like that. You know, but the point is that where there's confession of sin, there is always restoration. And, and Paul says, look, be aware of Satan's schemes. And whenever there is unforgiveness amongst believers, in whatever shape or form it takes, Satan's in there. And he's got a foothold in the church. And el elsewhere in Paul's writings, Paul talks about if, you know, if, if, if you've got anger against people that you're not putting right, you know, if, 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 if you're letting the sun go down on your wrath, so Satan's in there. And, and he always links the breakdown of relationships between believers with Satan. Satan getting in there to divide brothers and sisters. So Paul says, look, get this boat back into the church. He's repented. Restore him. Build him up. All right. Now, from 
verses 12 to 17 in chapter 2, um, he, he, he tells them that he ended up in Macedonia because he was looking for Timothy. So he'd gone like Timothy hunting, as it were, and uh, he'd, he'd actually found, found him. And, and he goes on to say that, that him and the people working with him, Timothy, Titus, etc., etc., he said, look, we're, we're always led in victory by the Lord. And he says, you know, kind of like, we're like a great procession. And it, they, he uses the picture here of a great victory procession, you know, like maybe an army coming home and with the spoils of war. And he says, that's what we're like. We're victors. You know, I mean, in reality, often, Christians are totally in the minority, often really trodden down as far as the world would see it. But Paul says, but we know that we're victors. And we're like this great procession. And he says, wherever we go, we spread the knowledge of God. And, and he says, what we're actually like is like the aroma of Christ. Now, that, that, that's a picture of incense and sacrifices under the law, you know, the idea of sweet-smelling sacrifices. And he says, look, we are the aroma of Christ. And this begs a question. How do we smell to unbelievers? Do you know what I mean? Do we smell good? I'll tell you, when we're not being true to the Lord, we stink to the world. But Paul says, look, we're the aroma of Christ. But he says, but, but, but we're the fragrance of life to those who believe, but the smell of death to those who don't. So even if we are being faithful to the Lord, to those that the Lord is working on and bringing into his kingdom, okay, we're, but they're going to say, hey, this is great. But to those who still hate Jesus, they're not going to like the smell of us, as it were. And that sweet aroma of Jesus is going to be a stench in their nostrils and they're going to, you know, be, be against us. But, you know, but Paul says, look, we are the aroma of Christ. And that's a real challenge, isn't it? To make sure that we really are smelling good, as it were, for the Lord. I mean, you know, we all know, don't we, in our day-to-day -day lives, I mean, just physically, you know, if we don't wash, if we don't use the odour, things like that. Well, we're not thought very pleasant to be around, are we? And, uh, you know, and, and in exactly the same way, if we don't keep washed and scrubbed up before the Lord in ongoing repentance and confession, turning from sin, getting right with the Lord and with our brothers and sisters, if we're not all the time keeping cleaned up, and, uh, you know, another picture in the Bible is the foot washing, isn't it? I mean, crumbs, what would happen if you didn't wash your feet very often? Again, are you the aroma of Christ? Or a whiff of something else, you see? And, uh, you know, and that's, that, that's a challenge. And then Paul, Paul goes on and he says, look, unlike some others I could mention, he says, I don't peddle the word of God. Now, he's, he's going back to these guys who are slagging him off because most of these teachers who went around, you know, sort of like trying to take over churches, that they charge, they were making money out of it. And, uh, you know, and Paul says, look, I don't peddle the word of God. And, and, and he's saying, look, you know, so I, I, I don't smell bad in that regard either. Um, and, you know, and he says his, his sincerity in, in this before God is absolutely clear to all. And, and so he's completely clearing himself. And, uh, you know, and, and, and here he, he actually, he, he makes it quite clear that to peddle the word of God is wrong. Now, to peddle something means to sell it. You see what I mean? So these guys charging. Now this is this is a bit of an indictment actually because because in in vast areas of the Christian church throughout history and it's certainly true today the preaching of the gospel costs you. <laughs> Do 
you know what I mean? And this is why, from the day that the Lord called me into full-time ministry, I've lived by faith. I've never charged. I've never claimed an expense. I've never drawn up salary, con- anything like that at all. What if, if it's right for me to do something, I do it. It's down to the Lord to provide. You don't charge people for the word of God. But that's what these people who are complaining that somehow Paul was dishonest, they would charge for their services. And Paul says, well, I haven't charged. So, you know, in that regards, you've got nothing on me at all. And then in chapter 3, he moves on in, 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 in this theme. And all the time he's demonstrating to them that he is genuinely an apostle of the Lord and that any charges of dishonesty or anything like that at all just cannot stick in regards to him, that it would just be, you know, sort of like completely wrong. And, and he, says, he says, you are the evidence of the ministry that God's given me. And he says, in actual fact, you're a letter. But he says, you're a letter not written with ink, but by the Holy Spirit on human hearts. So he says that as a result of what I've done, there you are, there's a church. And he says, you are the proof that God has genuinely called me. Now, earlier on, he was referring to being someone who smelt nice. Now, he's saying that we're walking letters. Again, think of it, unbelievers aren't ever going to read a Bible. People tend to do that after they become Christians. But they're not meant to read the Bible, they're meant to read us. You see? So again, you know, what, what kind of book are we? Are we a good book? See? Or are we not a good book? You know, what are people reading about Jesus as they look at the way we live? But Paul says, look, you're the proof of my ministry. And he says, because you're all living letters, you're all the walking word of God. And people can read your lives. And, and he says, the reason that I've been able to do this brings so many churches into being where people are literally walking epistles, walking little bits of the Word of God, is because God is with me and uh, because God has uh, called me to do it. And uh, he, he, he then goes in and he does a bit of a comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, all right, because he's talking about living letters and stuff like that. And he says, look, the old covenant now this was the written one remember the lord wrote on fit with his finger on the tablets of stone all right you know like the ten commandments and all that lot he says look the old covenant the written code brought death because obviously the law can't save anyone the law is there to show you that you need to be saved we're only safe through faith in jesus but the law is there to show us that we need to be saved so to that extent, you know, like the law, as it were, kills you stone dead. Not, not a great deal of help when it comes to salvation, but absolutely perfect for the job it was intended to do, which was to show us we needed saving in the first place. And he says, look, that brought death, okay, but was introduced with much glory. So, I mean, when God gave the Old Covenant on Mount Sinai, the glory that was around was absolutely incredible. And he says, look, so how much more glorious then is the New Covenant? And the new covenant, which is written on our hearts, you see, living letters, God writing on our hearts, you see, he says, look, that brings life, okay, so how much more glorious is that going to be than the old covenant? So he says the old covenant wasn't even meant to save you, 
that was only there to show you that you needed to be saved. But he said, if that was glorious, he says, how much more glorious is the new covenant? And, uh, you know, that's written on our hearts. And then he says, the, the old covenant has, has, has passed away. But he said, the new covenant is eternal. And he says, look, so we can be bold as we approach God. He says, look, Moses had to put a veil over his face. When the old covenant was given, Moses had to be veiled. Um, he says, but we see with unveiled face. We look straight into the face of Jesus. And in looking into the face of Jesus, we're looking straight into the face of God. And, uh, you know, so the position we're in as believers is that we can, as it were, look God straight in the eye. Israel, at the giving of the old covenant, couldn't, I mean, even if an animal touched the mountain, it had to be stoned. But Paul says, but we can look God right in the eye. We behold God in the face of Jesus Christ, which is absolutely amazing. And he says, look, the Spirit of God, who is the Lord, and this is one of the verses that establishes that the Holy Spirit, one, is personal, and two, is divine. Because here, Paul says the Holy Spirit is the Lord. Right. And uh, another place in Acts of the Apostles, you remember Ananias and Sapphira. And at one point, Peter said, you lied to God. And at another point, he says, you lied to the Spirit. So that shows us that the Holy Spirit is divine. Because there are some people who try and make out that he isn't, or even that he's not here at all, but an it. And here, Paul says, look, the Spirit of God, who is this about, who, who is the Lord, brings this about and sets us completely free free from the law, free from condemnation, or anything like that. And he says, but Israel is still veiled, because it hasn't believed on Jesus. But he says, the veil is removed whenever somebody turns to the Lord. And he says, the Holy Spirit is transforming us all the time into the likeness of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, that's the phrase he uses. He's been saying that the old covenant had a particular glory, the new covenant has an even greater glory. And he's saying, and this new covenant is written on our hearts, and he says the Holy Spirit is transforming us, maturing us, so that from one degree of glory to another. And, um, you know, all the time growing in the glory of the Lord. We don't fear it often, probably don't see it very often, but that is the truth, as we're growing in the Lord, we're actually growing in his glory. And um, it's also worth, worth, worth saying here as well that, that, that in these verses, um, some, uh, you've got where, um, hang on a sec, where Paul actually says, uh, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, obviously, what he's referring to there, the letter is the old covenant, all right? The spirit is the new covenant. But what some Christians try to do is they say that the Holy Spirit leads against the Bible. And, 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 and if you stick with the Bible, as opposed to the Holy Spirit supposedly leading them, they say, oh, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In effect, they're saying, don't worry about the Bible. Okay, the Bible says that women shouldn't be elders. But if the, if the Holy Spirit is leading a woman to be an elder, then the Spirit is life, the letter kills. And, you know, sort of, that is completely to misunderstand these verses. The Holy Spirit never goes against the Scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture. So every now and then you'll hit up against Christians who try to get round bits in the New Testament they don't like by saying, oh, the letter kills, but the, you know, as if the letter is referring to the New Testament. There, the letter is referring to the law, the Old Covenant, and the Spirit refers to everything that God has given us in the New Covenant. So don't ever let anyone, you know, sort of like try and lead you on somehow as if the Holy Spirit can lead you against the Bible. That will never happen. If you're led against the Bible, you're not being led by the Holy Spirit. It's as simple as that. You're being deceived. 
Um, right, now then, in, in chapter 4, he again emphasises to them that he has completely renounced shameful and underhanded ways. He keeps going back to this. He says, look, you won't find anything, you know, that I'm doing that is kind of anything other than above reproach. You know, he says, shine, shine your torches on my life. Feel, feel free. And he says, look, I and my colleagues, we have always set forward the truth quite plainly. And what he's saying is, there's no small print with Paul. There are no hidden agendas. What you see is what you get. Remember, all the time he's combating accusations, well, of, of every kind of, you know, every possible kind of accusation that he's been throwing at, at him by these false teachers in, in, in the church. And Paul says, look, you know, you know for yourselves that we've been above board and everything is absolutely up front, nothing hidden or anything like that at all. And he says, if anything about us is unclear, he says it's only to unbelievers. And then he goes back again and he says, look, they're veiled, all right? So he says, yeah, probably you might find unbelievers don't know what we're going on about, but that's because they're veiled. And he says, look, the God of this world, Satan, has, uh, has blinded them. And he says, but insofar as, as you lot are concerned, you know that everything has been completely open to the closest possible scrutiny. And again, no accusation of dishonesty or anything like that would stick against Paul at all. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to challenge, but say, Lord, look, I mean, that, that's the kind of life we want to lead, isn't it? That, that really is, you know, beyond reproach. Absolutely wonderful. And, and Paul says, you know, but nevertheless, we are where are clay pots. And he uses the picture of a clay pot with treasure inside. And he says, we're clay pots with treasure inside. And he says, look, the, the, the clay pot, being pretty worthless, emphasises all the more um, the treasure that's inside it. And of course what he's saying is, you know, I mean, he's, he's not claiming to be perfect, he's not claiming to be some superman. Obviously Paul was the dust of the earth, he's clay, the same as anyone else. He's a sinner, the same as anyone else. But he says the beautiful thing is that even in all our weakness and our humanity, it just goes to emphasise even more by comparison the wonder of the treasure of Jesus living in us. And, uh, and then he, he, he returns to the thing about all the hardships that we go through as believers. And he says, look, all the hardships you go through, he says again, it's all part and parcel of sharing Jesus' death and therefore his life. We saw earlier, Paul, the idea that, you know, that the hardships, the difficulties keep you dependent on the Lord and not yourself. They, they weaken us, they keep us weak. And here he says, yeah, it's the picture of actually sharing Jesus' death so that we can share his life. All the difficulties, it's all part of bringing us into death to self, you know, bringing us to the end of ourselves, so that then, when we haven't got anything left, then the life of the Lord, as it were, takes over. And, and Paul says, look, and, and my sufferings um, help you Corinthians as well, um, because he says, if, if it wasn't for all the sufferings I've been through, I wouldn't be who I am now. And therefore, I wouldn't be able to be a blessing to you. Because he's saying, if I hadn't suffered, I wouldn't have grown in the Lord. You know, I'd still be all full of myself. You know, the self-righteous Pharisee. But what good would that be to anyone? No good to us and no good to the Corinthians. And Paul says, yeah, so all the difficulties I've gone through, all the tears, you know, all the kind of things that just drive me again and again on my knees to the Lord because I'm so desperate. He says, all that has made me who I am. 
and so therefore I can be a blessing to you. So what he's saying is, you know, in regards to the difficulties, he says it's great. Again, James talks about welcoming all their hardships as friends. Because it's often through the difficulties that the Lord is doing his best work in us. And then he reminds them that one day they're going to be raised with Jesus as well, glorified with him. And, uh, and, and, and he says then, all the suffering we're going through now, he said, it will seem as nothing to us. So he says, it, it's all very hard now, but he says that when, when we're actually at home with the Lord, glorified, he said that, that then all this will, will seem to be completely as nothing. And he reminds them that that is why our eyes should be on what is unseen. Because what we're going to be isn't seen yet. I mean, life down here is kind of the beginning. It's almost like the, the you know, like the, you know, the preface, perhaps, or possibly even the cover of the book with the title on. The real business begins when we're glorified. And in chapter 5, he carries on now talking about, you know, our ultimate destination, the ultimate state we're going to be in. And uh, he, he likens the bodies we've got in this present life to tents, uh, which, of course, are temporary dwellings. And he then goes on to say that once we're glorified, he says, then our bodies will be houses, because houses are permanent. Remember when Israel went through the wilderness, it was temporary. They, they didn't stay anywhere very long, so they were in tents. But once they got into the Promised Land, into Canaan, there they were for good, so they built houses. And so Paul says, look, our bodies down here are tents. They're temporary dwellings. But we're going to lose this body, and then we're going to get a house, a permanent dwelling, i.e. a body that is glorified and again he goes back to what he said earlier that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of all this the fact that we've got the Holy Spirit guarantees this can happen now then how could they know they got the Holy Spirit well he told them that in his last letter in 1 Corinthians because he told them there that no one can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit so he says you 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 acknowledge you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord you've surrendered to him that's how you know you've got the Holy Spirit so if you've got the Holy Spirit, you know, but you know, but you know that you are going to be glorified. And he says, it'll be great to be with the Lord. He says, it'll be absolutely fantastic. And, and he says that we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, remember, we saw that when we did 1 Corinthians. He referred to it there, didn't he? And, uh, you know, sort of like the thing about the wood hayer's stubble is burned up so that everything that was just us will get burned up, as it were, in the fire. But everything that was the Lord through us will get rewarded for. You know, sort of gold, silver, precious stones. Gold representing God the Father, silver, Jesus, and uh, the precious stones, the Holy Spirit. And of course, what we've got here, this judgment seat of Christ, it's not judgment for sin, it's a reward seat. It's, you know, it's, it's more like if you've won a race and you go out and get your prize. And, uh, you know, and, and what we've got here is that there are three types of judgment that relate to us. There's God's judgment on sinners. That's past. That's gone. We've been saved from that. Jesus died in our place. At the present time, there's God's judgment on us as sons. We're his children. And that's all the difficulties. God disciplines us and chastens us because he wants to sanctify us. He wants us to live holy lives. He wants to bring us to the end of ourselves and to bring Jesus out. But when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there we're going to be judged as servants. So our service for the Lord is going to be judged. And as I say, everything he's done through us, he's going to reward us for. 
He borrowed our bodies, he borrowed our minds, he borrowed our personalities, and God is no man's debtor, and he wants to reward us. And Paul tells the Corinthians that he wants them to be proud of him. You know, he says, I don't want you believing all these horrible things about me. Yeah, he says, they're not true anyway, but, you know, this isn't Paul kind of, you know, sort of like blowing his own trumpet. This is Paul saying, you know, I mean, it's nice when people think well of you, isn't it? And these are people that Paul has laboured with. You know, he's, he's brought them to the Lord and he says, God, he said, I want you to be proud of me, not, not think all these horrible things about me. And, uh, and he says, look, you're, you know, you're, you're dead in Jesus. Um, you know, and he says, we, we no longer live for ourselves. He says, we live for the Lord. And, and then you get this really, you know, kind of famous and astounding few verses when he says, look, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation completely new a, a new one of the themes that comes over in the bible is in is is that of a new humanity that when when somebody becomes a believer obviously you still remain a human being but you actually become part of a new species and this new species that god has brought about is the redeemed humanity people who are born again and have the very nature of jesus and so you know here paul is saying um, you know, that, that, that we're a completely new creation. So he says, don't think of people in human terms anymore. He says, look, you know, here you are, you're believers, I'm a believer, uh, your experience of me personally has been good. He says, but you're ready to believe rotten things about me. It's all that. He says, that is thinking of people from a human point of view. He says, no, you've got to look at things from a godly point of view. And the godly point of view doesn't assume wrong of somebody without evidence and proof, you see. So, you know, he says crumbs. So we're all new creations. And he says, God is, is, is all about reconciling them to himself. He says, this is what God is about. God, in, in Jesus, God has reconciled the world to himself. And he says, so reconciliation should characterize our lives. And of course, what he's saying is, it's hardly reconciliation when you've got a church who have had an extremely good experience of someone who they're now, without any evidence whatsoever, doubting. That's not a spirit of reconciliation, is it? And Paul says, you know, look, that's, you know, that's what we've got to make sure characterises us. He says, look, we are ambassadors for Jesus. He said, and Jesus was the one who... Though he had no sin, he became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he says, that's what Jesus has done. The sinless Son of God became our sin, so that we could be the righteousness of God, and therefore we could be reconciled to God. So he says, that is the essence of what Jesus has done. So that is the essence of our hearts. This is why Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, you can't avoid conflict, and conflict is a reality in a sinful world. But the point is, a Christian will do whatever he can, if it's possible, to resolve conflict. And so when you've got people believing wrong things about each other, crumbs, there is conflict that can be resolved. So Paul says, you know, sort of like, don't, don't keep, you know, believing these daft things that these guys are telling you. He says, God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus. That should be the attitude that characterises us. He says, don't keep being influenced by these silly people who want to come along and, and just, you know, in order to increase their own power base, 
are prepared to, you know, kind of spread things that aren't true um, about other people. Now, in chapter 6, he tells them, so don't receive God's grace in vain. Which, which is an amazing thing to say, but you receive God's grace in vain when we don't live according to God's grace. Because he's saying to them, you know, if you give in to these guys and all this stuff, he says then you'll be receiving God's grace in vain. He says, look, be, be like what I've just outlined. Um, you know, a selfless, reconciliatory attitude of the Lord. Because that's what Jesus is like. And remember when Paul wrote to them previously, one of the things that he was correcting is that, you know, the Corinthians, they were very factious. You know, the little groups and they were all against each other and they were, you know, kind of like treating each other badly at the love feast and that. And, uh, you know, conflict seemed to be very much at the heart of some of the people in this church. And Paul's saying, no, look, that is not what, don't receive God's grace in vain. Stop all that, okay? And he says, and if you don't, otherwise we become a stumbling block to people's salvation. I mean, what effect is it going to have on unbelievers if when they come up against believers, they, they see all the squabbling and all the infighting and all the this, that and the other, and they think, well, no, no different to us. They're no different to us. And, and Paul says that that is just putting a stumbling block to people's salvation, which is an incredible thought, isn't it? Actually being a hindrance to people getting saved. Let's not be a hindrance to people getting saved. That's what Paul says. And he then goes on to speak of his own experience, and he reminds them that he had had several beatings, um, he'd been imprisoned numerous times, he was no stranger to hunger, um, you know, I mean, crumbs, he'd been shipwrecked, you name it, Paul had been through it. And what he says is that all through it, we have shown patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit. I mean, that, that's an amazing thing to say for yourself. Paul says it of himself and his team. He says, all that hardship we've been through, all, all through, we've shown kindness and patience. And, and he's imploring them to be doing the same in the circumstances that, that they're in. And, and he implores them to have as big a heart towards him as he has shown towards them. I mean, Paul has spent himself for these guys and these women. I mean, he's, he's kind of, you know, he's, he's, he's died a thousand deaths bringing them through. And, and, and now they're prepared to kind of be affected by tittle-tattle about him that isn't even true. And he says, oh, crumbs, you know, can you have a bigger heart than that, please? Let your heart be to me as, as my heart is, you know, he says, open your hearts to me even as my heart is, is open to you. And he, he tells them then not to be yoked with unbelievers, which, which there is probably uh, a reference to the pagan love feast that they were still going to down at the temple of Aphrodite. Um, Probably not here relating in any direct way to the idea of marrying unbelievers, although obviously you can establish from the scriptures elsewhere that you mustn't do that. Um, and and, and he, he, he quotes from the Old Testament, says, come out from among them and be ye separate. So he's probably with the fact that they're still going, carrying on a bit with their, their old lives before they became Christians. And, uh, and he says, look, what, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And, uh, and, and, and he says, what, what can Christ and Belial have in common? And Belial uh, comes from a, an old Hebrew word, Beliah, which means wicked. And eventually, to the Hebrew mind, it, it was kind of like came to 
be a name for Satan as the kind of incarnation of all wickedness and, and evil. So he says, no, don't, don't be like that, he says. You know, you've got to stay, stay really faithful to the Lord. Now in chapter 7, he's still, you know, pushing, pushing the whole thing home. And he says, look, because of the promises that God has made to us, he says, therefore, we should purify ourselves. And he says, we should perfect holiness of both body and spirit. And he says, look, because of what the Lord has done for us, we ought, therefore, to live holy lives. Now, when you get the word perfect in the Bible, the Greek is the idea of complete, bring to completion, i.e. to becoming more and more so. And he says, look, we should be becoming more and more holy in both body and spirit, i.e. inside and out. Because you can have a holiness on the inside with an uncleanness on the outside. That's no good. Or other people can have a, a holiness on the outside but uncleanness on the inside. The Pharisees were like that, weren't they? And Paul is saying, look, in the light of what Jesus has done. Now, some people have the kind of understanding that, that, that kind of the Christian life is God saying, you must be holy or I'm going to let you have it. And if you're not, in fact, you're going to lose your salvation. That is never the appeal of the New Testament. The appeal of the New Testament is always because of what Jesus has done for you, because you're going to be glorified and one day you're going to be sinlessly perfect, just like Jesus. Because of that, therefore, we ought to, in this life, be working towards it. So you haven't got in the Bible this kind of thing, you know, if you, right, okay, you're a Christian, but if you don't get holy, you're not going to be saved. But what it jolly well is saying is, look, because you are saved, we ought to be holy. And, uh, I mean, Peter, in his letters, takes up the same thing. He says, look, you know, the Lord is coming again. He says, therefore, we ought to purify ourselves. With that day in view, purify ourselves. So the Lord does want us to, to be becoming free from sin. We'll never be free from sin totally. It will always be a becoming, an ongoing process, an ongoing perfecting. But it's what the Lord wants us to do, and it's what the Lord is working in order to do in us. And um, you know, and so Paul is is you know now now saying this to them. Then he he, he tells them a bit more of all the hardships that he he'd been through. Paul Paul was very open, very candid bloke. I mean, he, he didn't. You know, sort of like vulnerable, really. If you read Paul's letters, he makes himself quite vulnerable. And, uh, you know, and he says that, that he was eventually um, comforted by finding Titus. So he already spoke about that he went up to Macedonia because he wanted to find Timothy. And now he refers to, you know, because he'd found Titus as well, and that, that, that made him feel a bit better. So that, that's kind of fairly vulnerable. I mean, Paul, Paul does not hold back from revealing his own weakness his own need of people. I mean, Paul wasn't some, you know, kind of like super-together bloke who, I don't need any. Quite the contrary. I mean, Paul was lost without his friends, and, you know, and it really comes across um, in the letters. And uh, then he, he reminds the Corinthians that he does love them, that he died for them. Crumbs. That, you know, because he'd proven again and again and again that he was prepared to die for what God had called him to do. And he says, look, I love you, and I'm prepared to, 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 to die for you. And he acknowledged that his previous letter, I, 1 Corinthians, had caused them grief. It had made them unhappy. 
because old boy, they did get a bit of a pasting. I mean, they needed it, but they did get a pasting. And Paul says, look, I know that that caused you grief. That upset you. And he says, I hated doing it. But he said, even though I hated doing it, I'm still glad I did because it brought about godly sorrow in you. He says it brought godly sorrow that led to repentance. Um, and, and, and he said, so I'm glad I did it. He said, I hated doing it. Um, you know, beware Christians who want to correct. Beware Christians who won't correct. But beware Christians who want to correct. Paul never enjoyed correcting. Paul never enjoyed being negative in any way at all. He did it because it was necessary. And it has to be done. But when correction is done, it's only to bring the person into a better relationship with God, which is better for them in the long run. You see, so it's only thinking of the good of the person. So Paul said, I hated having to correct you. He says, but I'm glad I did, though, because it brought you to repentance. I know it upset you, but that upset actually was a godly sorrow, and it led you to repentance. And he says, but worldly sorrow, on the other hand, um, just brings death. And, uh, you know, I mean, you often, you know, sort of find in the world that, you know, I mean, sort of like, you know, someone might correct someone. And it brings them sorrow. You know, they storm up to their room and slam the door and they're sulking for, well, actually quite a few Christians are like this as well, and we shouldn't be. So, you know, but it does no good at all because they just get the ump. So, so, so that's worldly sorrow. Now, that's just kind of, oh, I'm upset because you corrected me, blah, blah, blah. But godly sorrow is when any upset actually brings us to our senses and makes us think, oh, well, yeah, this is right. I'm going to actually put, put this right. And, um, and then he reminds them, because Titus had been to Corinth since, since Paul had been there, and he says, that, you know, he reminded them that Titus had been really blessed by his time there, so he says, that, that's good, Titus has been amongst you, and he's come back, and he's told me that he had a real, real good time. And, um, and then he, he says to them, look, I'm, I'm sure, you know, that, 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 that I have complete confidence in you. Um, and he says, I'm happy that you are repenting of the things that I wrote you about. So, so Paul's idea of hanging off before he goes, is paying off. He wants them to be repentant before he goes back. So he doesn't have to do any more correcting, as it were. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's what, you know, he, he, his, his, his burden was. Now, in chapters 8 to 9, he turns his attention to a collection that was being taken by, I mean, all the churches over the then known world uh, for the church in Jerusalem, um, which, which was going through a really, really bad time. And so all, all the churches that Paul and others were involved with were actually taking collections to send um, to the believers down in Jerusalem. And, um, you know, and Paul's saying, and, you know, sort of Titus will eventually come to you and take charge of this collection. So um, I'll just, just read a few verses from here, because this is, uh, you know, like Paul, within the context of dealing with this collection, you know, it says quite a lot about giving, which, which is always good to know. So let's just read um, a few verses from chapter 8, first of all. And, um, <clears throat> and in verse 7 he says, um, Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in your love for us, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. Isn't that a lovely thought? 
Paul says, I want you to excel at giving money away. I like that. I think that's good, that is. Let's read verse 13 and 15. And he says, look, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. He says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. And it's just, just nice, isn't it? Resources shifting around in the body of Christ according to who needs what um, at any one, one time. And then he goes on to say, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. That was a reference to the fact that in the, um, as Israel went through the wilderness, every morning the manna came down, didn't it? And, uh, but of course, on the Sabbath, there wasn't any manna. So, you know, sort of God said, take two lots on, on the Saturday, uh, sorry, on the Friday, and, and then you'll have enough for the Sabbath. And what people found, um, you know, that those who, who didn't take double amounts always had enough, but those who tried to take loads and loads and were greedy didn't have any more than anyone else. Kind of a, you know, the Lord has a, a sort of like, you know, evening, th- you know, things out according to, um, to his own will. And, um, and then let's, let's go on to verse 9. And um, verses verses six to eleven, and he says, "Remember this: whoever sows sparingly, remember what he's talking about here. Basically, is giving. All right, is, you know, this is what he's talking about in regards to a collection that they're taking with the Jerusalem church. Remember this: whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided." in his own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this, this confirms to us, you won't find tithing in the New Testament for the churches. There's no tithing. Tithing was Israel's tax system. And uh, although tithe means 10%, there were actually three tithes. So it's, it's, you know, but in the New Testament church, free will offering. I mean, Israel had that as well, but free will offering is the way of giving in the Christian church. Remember, giving isn't God's way of raising money, it's God's way of raising children. So no tithing, it's down to each person uh, should give what he has decided in his heart to give. So no one dictates anyone else's giving. This is purely down to the individual before God. And he said, not reluctantly, he says, because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, cheerful giver, the Greek word there is hilarious. It actually means laughing. And if you can't give with a smile, God don't want it. You know, if it's, and then off you go and cry your heart out because, you know, you, you, you've just given it. Keep it, keep it. You know, God, you know, wants it to be given hilariously. And it says not under compulsion, which means under pressure. I mean, it, it, it's so terrible the way that money is pressured out of people at Christian meetings. Ah, oh, it's sick. It really is sick. And remember, Paul has previously condemned peddlers of God's word. That, that is wrong, because it goes against the essence of what giving ought to be. Giving ought to be generous, because we're just so joyful at God's generosity to us. Not just materially, but primarily in regards to the fact he's forgiven us our sins. And I mean, there is a link in the Bible between giving 
and spiritual blessing. I'm not saying that you can buy spiritual blessing. Don't get me wrong. But what I am saying is that Jesus makes it quite clear in a parable that, that, that people who are faithful in giving can expect to have spiritual gifts. You know, but if we're not faithful in the little things, well, God isn't going to trust us with the bigger things. I'm not saying that you can buy blessing. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying that there is a link. You know, the Christian who is not a giver, you don't have to give. But the Christian who isn't a giver, well, he's hardly going to be living an abundant Christian life with Jesus, are they? Because if you are living a Christian life with Jesus, one of Jesus' characteristics is that he is so generous. And therefore, that's going to make us generous as well. And he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. The picture there of the Lord, you know, this big bag of goodies, just chucking it all out to people who need it. Because he's so generous. He gave himself. How can he top that? And, I mean, Paul says, doesn't he, elsewhere, that, that he who has given his own son, will he not also freely with him give us all good things? And, uh, you know, and so that generosity is characteristic of, of the Lord himself. And then Paul says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now there's a link. He's, he's talking about giving generously. And then he says, this will increase your harvest of righteousness. Now again, you can't buy it. The moment, the moment you give money in order to get blessing from God, all right, you're stuffed, to quote an Essex phrase. <laughs> right. Because that's the wrong motive. That's not giving, you know, that's trying to buy something from God. But when giving is done just out of the just generosity of heart, because we love the Lord, and because we love wherever the you know the wherever the need you know we love the people blah blah blah, then obviously that will lead to blessing for us in our Christian lives. And he says you will be made rich in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, some people try and make this first soul, God wants you all to be rich. I mean, nonsense, it doesn't. But what it certainly is saying is that to whatever extent the Lord prospers us, what's it for? You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. So if the Lord prospers us, he might not. I mean, some people keep them fair, you know, middle of the road. Some people keep them fairly poor. But if the Lord prospers us, and remember, if someone is in abject poverty and then a couple of years later they've got a rise and now they're only poor, they're prospering. I mean, these things are relative, aren't they? But the point is, to the extent that we prosper, if we ask the question, why is God prospering us? If, if indeed we're prospering, why? Is it so we can have a higher lifestyle because he loves us more than the people that haven't got a higher lifestyle? No, it's so we can give more away. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have a high lifestyle as well, but primarily it means the greater that God prospers us, the greater should our giving be, all right? So he says, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And he says, and through us, 
your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Because wherever giving is, all right, that obviously that's blessing wherever, you know, whoever the people are where the money ends up, if they need it. So that, that, that ends up in thanksgivings to God. So that's, that's, you know, brilliant. Anyway, chapter 10, Paul now goes back to his critics, all right? Let's go back to these guys because it's important. And, um, and he answers another accusation that they're lying at his feet or rather that they're, they're whispering about behind his back. And it's this, they're, they're saying that, that, that although his letters are tough, when he gets there, he'll be a wimp. All right, so, so the Corinthians have got this really authoritative letter from Paul. And it's probably made them think, oh yeah, Paul is a man of authority in the Lord. And so these other guys are saying, oh well, no, because when he comes, he'll be a wimp. You see, you know. So I'll just read the first six verses. He says, look, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. He's being sarcastic. This is what they're saying. He says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So he's saying, look, I hope for your sake I'm not going to have to be as bold with you as I'm going to have to be with him. So he says, that will settle the question as to whether I'm bold when I'm away and timid when I'm with you. Because he says, if I have to face these guys down, they'll soon find out that I'm bold in presence as well as when I write letters. Because Paul never wanted to use his authority for tearing down. He always wanted to use it for building up. But whenever it was necessary for Paul to tear down, he tore down. Now, obviously, there's only ever tearing down so that people can be given the chance to repent, but you can never know they're going to repent. So, you know, so Paul, Paul, Paul was not a wimp. And then he goes on to say, he says, look, he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. Because, I mean, these guys are just using, the, you know, like the slur, the mud slinging, stuff like that. Paul doesn't enter into that. He says, look, on the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. And Paul says, look, the enemy is always lies. It is always deception. It is always wrong thinking. And this is what these false apostles are trying to get into the Corinthian church all the time. Wrong teaching, slurs against innocent people, mind games all the time. And Paul says, that's, that's the enemy. And, and Paul always combated these things with, with the truth. And he then goes on and he gets really sarcastic now. And he says that he wouldn't dream of comparing himself um, with, with those super apostles, he calls them. Um, who are causing the trouble amongst them and bad-mouthing him. He says, I wouldn't dream of comparing myself to them. Because you, you, you hear his sarcasm, because they're trying to make out that, that, that he's not as good as them. <laughs> and he says, oh, I wouldn't dream of comparing myself to them. Because he's meaning is, because I'm much better than them. That's why I wouldn't dream of, you know, they're kind of, to that extent, beneath my notice, as it were. were. And Paul says, they are merely commending themselves. And he says, but I don't have to do that. 
He says, God has commended me and Timothy and Titus. And then he goes back to say, and you're the proof. You see, because these false apostles, they didn't part the church. Paul did. And that forever was the thing that they couldn't get round, and that's why they got so mad with Paul. So Paul says, look, they've got to build themselves up all the time, commend themselves, recommend themselves, push themselves. He says, I don't have to do that. He says, because God's, you know, commended me. And he says, I'll prove it to you. Boom, Corinthian church, you see. So Paul was actually unassailable, but he had to remind the Corinthian church of this, that they were the proof of his apostleship. Now I'm going to read the first six verses of uh, chapter 11. So again, Paul now is just one bang, 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 dealing with all these false accusations, all this criticism that these guys are um, dishing out to him. Right, verse 1 to 6. He says, I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you were already doing that. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now get these next verses, they're astounding. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you received, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. I mean, the sarcasm is just dripping out of his pen, isn't it? I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Now, notice firstly, we will understand how you can have a different God and a different, you know, a different gospel. You know, like Islam, it's a different God. But here. Paul says you can have a different Jesus. And, and in saying, obviously, salvation is through Jesus, of course, but just double-check the Jesus that the people are referring to. I'll give you one classic example. The Jesus of Catholicism is not the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't genuine believers all mixed up in the Catholic Church. There are. But true Catholicism has Jesus at the centre of itself, but it's not Jesus of the New Testament. Because it then presents a gospel completely different to one Jesus taught. We see Jesus said, this is purely by grace. The Catholic Church says, oh yeah, yeah, but you have to earn grace. So the Catholic Church is salvation by works. That is not what Jesus taught. And, uh, you know, a different spirit. It's so subtle, all that Satan trying to get in with the old deception. But, what, you know, sort of Paul, Paul's saying here is, um, you know, that, that sort of, he, he's dealing with, with this thing that because he doesn't charge, I mean, earlier on, they, they, they slagged him off because they, they were trying to make out that he just wanted the Corinthians' money. Well, he's reminded them uh, that he doesn't want any of their money, he's never taken any money, so how can anyone accuse him of being in it for the money? Because his services have been completely free of charge. In fact, Paul has refused even gifts from the Corinthian church and only had gifts from other churches. 
So in the light of this, now, his critics are saying, oh, well, if, if, he, if he does it for free, it can't be worth much, can it? And uh, that's, that's why Paul refers to this trying speak a bit. Because in the ancient world, you had these orators, and they went around, but they'd charge for their oratory. And Paul says, okay, I'm no orator. I don't claim to be. He says, but I've got knowledge. And, uh, you know, so, so again there, he's a, but he calls them super apostles. I, I mean, just really quite, quite sar sarcastic about it. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll just read verses 13 to 15. He says, for such men are false apostles. See, these guys trying to twist the church around. Deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder Satan himself masquerades as an age of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And there are people, they follow a different Jesus and they are false apostles. And they are, you know, servants of Satan, the angel of light. And, uh, you know, and, and Satan has always tried to pervert the church by getting false teaching on the inside. Now, false teaching can come through genuine believers who are deceived, yes, but here, Paul's up against people they weren't even genuine believers. They were probably the Gnostics. And, uh, you know, but, but, but kind of serious stuff. And uh, so what Paul does now, he does a little boasting of his own, all right, because these guys, they're boasting their oratory and blah, blah, blah. And in verses 20, well, from verse 22, Paul does some boasting. Let's, let, let's read and see what his boast is. He says, Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, spent a night and day in the open sea. He goes through it. He says, here's my qualifications. It's what I've suffered for Jesus. He says, what are these guys' qualifications? And it's going around getting all the salutes in the marketplace and charging for the privilege. And Paul says, that's my boast. It's what I've suffered for Jesus. Um... And then in chapter 12, he reminds them how that there had been an occasion, well, possibly more than one occasion, we don't know how long it lasted, but he'd actually been taken up to the third heaven. Uh, third heaven, number one, birds of the heavens. Number two, stars in the heaven. The third heaven, outside of the universe, the, the home of God, where paradise is. And Paul said that he was taken up to paradise in the third heaven. And he said he saw inexpressible things. And, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, he says, again, he's saying, this is my qualification. And the Corinthians had heard all these things. They, they knew full well just how genuine Paul was. And, um, you know, he told them, you know, how God had given him this thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan. Um, and and he, three times he prayed for the Lord to take it away. And each time the Lord said no. And he said that this, this thorn in the flesh was to keep him humble, this, this messenger from Satan. We don't know what it is. Some people think it was a, a physical illness. I'm rather of the opinion that, that what this messenger from Satan was, was the fact that wherever Paul went, he went through the most extraordinary opposition from people. 
I think that's what it was. I mean, that's my own opinion. That actually, you know, there was a demon that followed him around and was allowed to stir people up against him. Um, you know, so that Paul never got what you call superstar status, which he could have done. He was such an exceptional bloke, but the Lord had to keep him groveling in the dust. And uh, you know, so that that's kind of what I think the old thorn in the the, the flesh was. And then he he he, he goes back to. Um, you know, sort of like reminding them that, that he isn't inferior in any way at all to these super apostles that he was um, coming up against. And, um, and he, he reminds them that he'd proved his ministry to them by apostolic signs. Uh, you remember in the Acts of the Apostles, there are two, two occasions when it refers to extraordinary miracles being done. Now then, I hesitate to refer to common or garden miracles because we see so few today. But common or garden miracles, I mean, lots of believers, the Lord used them to work miracles in the New Testament, uh, you know, who weren't apostles, Philip, etc., etc. Great, and oh Lord, let us see more today. But you'll remember there was an occasion with Peter when even if his shadow touched people, they were healed. And there was an occasion with Paul that even if people got hold of a handkerchief, of his, they were healed. Now these were extraordinary miracles. Both Peter and Paul raised people from the dead. So the point is, what Paul is alluding to here is the fact that God had used him to work miracles of the order that the eleven, Peter being a representative of them, who works as well. So again he's saying, my apostleship has been proven by the fact that the Lord has used me to work signs and wonders that only the other apostles you see, because people used to say, oh, but he wasn't with Jesus, he wasn't an apostle. And Paul said, but in every way, God has demonstrated that he regards me the same as them. I've even worked the same size and wonders. So, um, you know, sort of again, all the time he's showing, and I've been taken up to heaven. He says, the eleven, yeah, they got their teaching for three and a half years from Jesus in person. And then they saw Jesus raised from the dead. That's what, uh, what I call a, a apostle the unrepeatable apostles who wrote the Bible, that's what they were. But so did Paul. Paul got his teaching from Jesus in heaven. Paul saw Jesus having been raised again from the dead. He worked the same miracle. He was an apostle in the same way that the eleven were, i.e. the twelve minus Judas. And, um, and, he, you know, and then he says, look, if, if I've treated you differently from any other church, um, he says, it's because I've served you free of charge. And, you know, and he says, if anyone's trying to make out that somehow I'm different with you than I am from anyone else, he says, the only thing that's different when I come to you than with other churches is that I've refused to accept any gifts from you whatsoever. And, um, you know, and he says, how on earth did that make you feel inferior? How on earth did that make you feel that I somehow despised you or only wanted you for what I could get out of you? He says, because I got nothing out of you at all. And... Um, and then he tells them that he'll continue to be free of charge the next time he comes as well. And uh, he reminds them that he wants them, uh, not their you know, possessions. It was them he wanted. And, and, and that Titus had uh, worked amongst them on exactly the same principle. Now let's just, just finish off by just reading, um, just reading to the end. Um, chapter 12 and just verse 20 to 21. He says, For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. 
I fear that there may be quarrelling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. That was all the going down to Aphrodite's temple as we saw last time. So there's Paul saying, please, don't let it be that when I come you haven't repented. He says, I, I, I want it to be a nice visit, not blah, blah, blah. And then let's, let's just read through verse um, uh, chapter 13, the last chapter. And he says, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So no hearsay, no rumours or anything like that, but evidence. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. And what Paul's saying is when I get there, those of you who are still make, taking the mick, I'll not be a walkover. You'll be dealt with. You'll be dealt with. I, they would be put out of the church. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. He's not saying make sure you're Christians. He says test yourselves to make sure you're actually living in surrender to Jesus. I mean, grace means that you can have Jesus as Saviour, but not as Lord. But we're supposed to have him as Lord as well, you know. He says, do you not realise that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is for your perfection. And Paul's saying, I couldn't actually give a monkeys what people think about me. I just want to see you right. Even if people think, oh, that church that Paul had input into, what a, isn't Paul hopeless? He says, I don't care if they think I'm hopeless. My only concern is that you get right with God and come into the blessings that God has for you. He says, this is why I write these things when I am absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. And he says, look, it's so much better if I can write to you and, and, and sort of like, you, you get your slap on the wrist through a letter, you get it all right, and then when I come, no problem. He says, you know, but if it's not like that, then I am going to have to be tough when I'm with you as well, but I'd rather not be. He says, I want to keep building you up. But he says, I have got authority to tear down as well. I'll do it if I have to. And he says, finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, in, in that, I mean, just take that. Aim for perfection. Be of one mind. Live in peace. 
and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Is that cultural? I'm not going to try it out tonight, that's for sure. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with you all. Boom, boom. That's great, isn't it? Next time, Galatians. <laughs>